It's a real privilege to be here today. You know, um, I really appreciate Joe and Deb and their ministry with BCI over these many years. And over this weekend, we've heard a lot about the influence of, of the Institute, even across the world. Uh, I remember nearly 25 years ago when there were three certified counselors in Ohio, Joe Propery, Tim Pasma, and John Street. And that was it. And before Tim and John, there was Joe, like for 20 years before that, you know. Um, and and Joe, Joe, for years, um, persevered with his vision. And because of that, um, I think ACBC, as we are known now, is, has profited greatly. One of the first times I met Joe was in 1989. I don't know if it was the first time, but one of the first times I met Joe was in 1989 at the NANC Annual Conference in Philadelphia. And there were less people at that conference than there are at this one right now. There are just, just maybe a hundred people there at that conference. And um, my friend John Street, I remember we were talking one time, and he said, yeah, you know, the biblical counseling movement is like this. You, you see that picture of the elephant on the plains? Yeah. And you see that bird that's sitting on top of the elephant? Yeah. We're the flea on the bird. <laughs> All right? And yet... Uh, because of Joe's faithfulness, that's, that's changed a lot. Now, Joe and I are old-timers then. You know, we've been around in, the, in this for a long time. And so uh, um, we're excited. I'm excited about what's, what's happening in Dr. Lambert's leadership and uh, the way he's thinking and how he's going to... It appears to take us to another level. And so we're thankful to God for, for that and... Uh, We've had a great time with Dr. Lambert already today, and Pastor Glenn, good ministry of the word. We're going to talk about the supremacy of Jesus today, so let's just take our, just take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Before we look at that, let's, uh, let's pray. Oh God, we pray now that you would work in our hearts and help us to see the supremacy of Jesus in all of our counseling. Um, Lord, we are utterly and completely dependent upon him as he is revealed in his word as the spirit applies that to us. Help us to think this through. Help us to um, truly see that Jesus must be central in all our counseling. Help us to see that today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's think about Ginger for a moment. Ginger um, has come to you, and, and she is really struggling. You're trying to sort out the issues that she's um, struggling with. You're trying to get to those issues and trying to help her and try to give her answers and and yet you realize that the troubles that she faced aren't just some random things that are happening in her life. She is there by God's sovereign purpose. It's no accident that she's there ready to grow. But can you have confidence in helping her? What can you offer her? 
what right do you have to tell her what to do? And, and who really cares for her and is going to see that she makes it through all this? Well, I would suggest to you that all of those questions can be answered in a person. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who has all authority and power, that is the good shepherd who possesses all sovereignty. Now, when you think about sovereignty, and many of you here are familiar with that, we talk about God as being sovereign, and, and, uh, and we talk about the sovereignty of God. What do we mean when we say that someone is sovereign? When we say someone is sovereign, we're asserting that that person has both authority and power. That is, he has the authority, that is, the right to plan. Um, the right to plan, um, to command, or to promise. It also means that he has power, okay? That he has the ability to enforce his commands or carry out his plans or the ability to fulfill any promises. Now, how is it that God can say that all things work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose? How can he say that? Well, he can say that because he is sovereign, He has the right to bring the hardship into your life, right? He has that authority. And he has the power to see that they accomplish the good that he intends. But what about Jesus? Does he share in that same sovereignty? And I would say he does, and he makes that clear in John chapter 10. So let's take our Bibles and let's read John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? All right, now let's look at this together, shall we? First of all, I want you to see the sovereignty of Jesus. 
You see, Jesus exercises sovereignty over you, his sheep, because he has authority over you. Please notice how Jesus describes his relationship to these sheep. Notice carefully. Verse 3, he calls them his own sheep. Verse 4, he says his own. And then later in that verse, he says his sheep. Verse 5, they do not recognize a stranger's voice, implying that they recognize Jesus' voice because he's no stranger to them. Verse 12, the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. The implication being what? Jesus is the shepherd who does own the sheep. In verse 14, he uses the term my sheep two times in that one verse. Verse 16, I have other sheep. And if you drop down to verse 29, he says, um, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. My Father who has given them to me. Jesus says throughout this parable that the sheep recognize their shepherd as soon as he presents himself to them because even before that moment, what? They already belong to him. Because Jesus owns the sheep, he has the right or the authority to command, right? So right away we see What? Jesus has the right to command. They are his sheep. But Jesus also accomplishes his purpose for his sheep because he possesses the power to accomplish those purposes. Now, you ever looked at this? Why do the sheep believe? Why do the sheep believe? Verse 4, because they know his voice. Verse 5, but they will never follow a stranger. They do not recognize a stranger's voice. The implication is that sheep recognize the voice of Jesus. Verse 14, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. That is, the sheep respond to Jesus because of, notice, because of his prior knowledge of them. Not because of their knowledge of him, but his knowledge of them. Verse 16, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one shepherd and one flock. Jesus says that he will bring those sheep to him, right? Just as he brought to himself the other sheep he already has. So Jesus recognizes his sheep because they'd already been given to him by his Father to be his disciples. And they recognized Jesus because he had been sent to them by the Father to be their shepherd. Now look at verses 25 through 30. You see another expression of the sovereignty of God, or at least his power. Verse 25. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, his opponents don't believe because they're not among his sheep. But in verse 27, Jesus rejects all self-sufficiency because where you would expect him to say, my sheep listen to my voice, they know me and follow me, that's not what he says, is it? Instead, he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Jesus' recognition that they are his is the determinative thing. That's what moves them 
to believe. Now, do you remember the day you first heard the voice of your shepherd? Do you remember that day? Do you remember how for years you ignored his call to you? His invitation to come to him and find the good life? Do you remember what made you finally turn and see the glories of this crucified Lord? It was nothing in yourself, was it? It was that Jesus said, come, follow me. And you responded because the Father had given you to him and the shepherd showed up to claim his sheep. That's why you believed. That's why you believed. Now notice that that Jesus even exercises his sovereignty over the very instrument that accomplishes his good purposes. Look at verse 18 again. No one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Okay? He even exercises authority over the cross. Now, there are other scriptures that assert that Jesus possesses such sovereignty. Um, there's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? Therefore, go and make disciples. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And so in this chapter, we see that Jesus is sovereign as a good shepherd. Why? Because he has both what? Authority and power. He has both of those things. It's clear from John chapter 10. Now, we need to see then the sovereignty of Jesus, the good shepherd. Let's look at verse 10. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite counseling verses, by the way. That's why why I'm doing this. Because I love this verse, especially in counseling. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Now, do you see that the promise that the Good Shepherd makes in this text? Do you see the promise that Jesus makes? Jesus says here that he's revealed himself as a good shepherd, bringing something with him. Do you need anything other than Jesus to have a peaceful, fulfilling life? No, you don't, do you? That's all you need is Jesus. And Jesus, in explaining why he came, says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and life to the full, right? Now, if you're truly going to understand the good shepherd who promises a good life, you've got to heed his words concerning those who compete with him in promising the good life. Beware of the false shepherds that promise much. Okay? Beware of the false shepherds who promise much. What are they like? Well, they are anyone, anyone who promises the good life by calling for you to bank your hopes or put your confidence in his program, his philosophy, his interpretation of reality, his answers to life's enduring questions. Those are the false shepherds. They are the messiahs and the gurus who come along with all the answers and tell you to bank your hopes on what they propose to you. Okay? Who are they? 
Who are they? You know who they are? They're the Dr. Lors and the Dr. Phils who essentially say, you'll find the good life if you only face up to the facts, you knucklehead, you pathetic weakling. Right? I can never understand how people are attracted to that. I just don't get that. But, you know, they turn on the radio and the television and listen to this guy beating them up, and then they think he's wonderful, Right? They come along and say, if only you'd see yourself as valuable and able to contribute. It's only you get that in your head. You'll be, able to, you'll be able to do something worthwhile. Or If only you recall your past and envision Jesus walking with you through all those horrible, horrendous, traumatic experiences, then you'll experience the good life. Some claim, and this is really popular about a decade ago, the philosophical counseling. The unexamined life is not worth living. Let's examine our lives according you know, to these philosophical principles and see what what you come up with. And that's the way to lead a fulfilling life. Or it's the Rush Limbaugh's. (gasps) Certainly you won't say anything about Rush. It's the Rush Limbaugh's who say to you, I found my potential, you know yours, just chase your dream and you'll have a good life, right? Anyone who comes to you claiming to have the key to life and encourages you to put your hopes in, in what they propose Beware. Look out. How does Jesus see these these, um, purveyors of the good life? What's his analysis of it all? We spoke about them in the Old Testament centuries ago. Turn to Isaiah Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, 9 through 12, okay? Let's look at what what Jesus had already said um, through the prophets. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 9. Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour, all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. Come, Each one cries, let me get wine, let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. You see how Isaiah looks at these shepherds? They're like mute dogs who can't bark any longer and sound the warning when danger comes, because they're lazy, because they're drunken, gluttonous brutes. They love an easy life, and they seek only personal gain. All right? Is that what you see around you today? Do you not see these kinds of shepherds all around you today? This is what they're like. How long do you think Dr. Phil could last if he didn't make money, scads of it, doing what he's doing? And you ever notice how these motivational speakers will only come if you can pony up a couple thousand bucks for a half an hour, a couple thousand? That's cheap, isn't it? Right? They only come and tell you how to make a success, success in your life if you've got the money to pay them for it, right? They're in it for themselves. In light of, of what he already said in the Old Testament, look at what Jesus says about them now in John chapter 10. He says, these kind of people who promise you the good life end up robbing you, not just of your resources, but of the very thing they promise. They're robbing you of life. They're destroying you. They, 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 in fact, bring death and destruction. And they care nothing for the sheep. Their compassion is a sham. And when things get bad, what do they do? They abandon you, right? 
They abandon you. But the primary characteristic of these messiahs is that they always come in some other way than Christ. Now, this is key. This is a question you always ask whenever you're thinking through a counseling system. What does it do with Jesus? What does it do with Jesus? Do you know, the book of Colossians was written to a church that is struggling just like the church today. The book of Colossians was written to a people where these teachers had come in and they were saying things like this. Hey, Jesus is, Jesus is necessary. Yeah, boy. Yeah, Jesus is necessary, but you need more. That's exactly what was going on at Colossae. Just exactly what was going on. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends, watch, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. See, it's not like, he's saying, they're saying, yeah, Jesus is important. We need him, but you need more. And he says, they're not depending on Christ. They're depending on human traditions, on the basic principles of this world. They ignore Jesus. Beware of false shepherds who promise much. All right? Now, what's the answer to such thieves and robbers? Well, you notice in this chapter, it's not a what, but a who. Do you see that? You've got to see Jesus, the only shepherd. And what you notice in John chapter 10 is Jesus does not come with a system. He doesn't come with a program. What does he do? He offers himself instead. Verse 7. I am the gate for the sheep. Verse 9, I am the gate. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Do you notice that he offers himself? Jesus is not a philosopher. He's not a guru. He's not a man with a plan. He is a redeemer who is full of grace and truth, who comes and captures your heart with his good news. And guess what? He has you in mind the whole time. He does not seek to help you until the resources give out. Isn't it interesting? Some of the people that I see in counseling a lot are people who have been through the mental health institution, and now because their insurance money has run out, they're thrown out on the street. You ever notice that? And they're the compassionate ones, aren't they? Yeah. He doesn't think how he can live off of you. In fact, Jesus claims to be the good shepherd. When he claims to be the good shepherd, I'm convinced of this. When Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, this is a claim to deity. This is a claim to deity because in Ezekiel 34, it is God himself who promises that he will come and gather the sheep. You notice that? Look at Ezekiel 34 for a moment. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. 
So I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. Then they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep. And have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Jesus claims to be that shepherd. The shepherd will not use you or abuse you. The shepherd will care for you, search for you, gather you to himself. So we have to believe that Jesus has come. You have to believe that Jesus has come to give what he has promised. Now, what is that like? What is life like that he promises? In his sovereignty, that is in the authority and power, he comes to bring you, um, he comes to bring you this life. You see, we either were or are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, sure, we have physical life. Everybody has physical life. But it's a life devoid of peace with God. It's a life where we're enslaved by our desires. And it's a life of misery and malice. One of the most interesting passages in the Bible for me is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, where it talks about unbelievers as living in malice, being hated, and hating one another. You ever go out? Just go out and sit in McDonald's or something and just get close to people and listen to them. Nine times out of ten, you're going to hear conversations about people going, yeah, and then I said to him, and you know, she's always this way. It is amazing the amount of malice out there, isn't it? That's the kind of life unbelievers live. And some of you aren't too far removed from that, and you remember that, don't you? It's a life devoid of peace. It's a life of enslavement to desires. It's a life of malice and envy and misery. You ever seen the the movie um, Four Feathers? Is that what it's called? Yeah, The Four Feathers. Oh, Heath Ledger's in it. Everybody knows him, right? And uh, it's a story. These four guys are in the British Army during the the campaign in Sudan in the 1880s. And uh, I won't go into the whole details of the story, but two men end up in this Arab prison. And during the night... You watch this, and they're crammed into this prison where they stand shoulder to shoulder and cheek to cheek. You can't even lay down. They're crammed into this fortress. And the only thing they can do is just walk all night long. Just walk. If you, if you lose consciousness or you fall asleep and fall down, you get trampled to death. All right? And then they let them out during the day, and they get out into this hot, burning sun with one cup, little cup of water and... Food, if someone brings the food to them. Would you call that life? I mean, they're alive, right? They're alive. But is that living? No, that's not living. That's the life lived under sin. But Jesus came to bring real life, a life worth living. Now, John oftentimes uses the term eternal life. And we all believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. That term eternal life literally means life of the age to come. Life of the age to come. What does that mean? It means that we can experience now life in that age yet, where where there's no sin, there are no conflicts, there are no evil appetites you must fight. 
All is peace. There's no death or crying. That's life of the age to come. Jesus came so that you would begin to experience that now, right? It's that new age invading this age, and those people who belong to that age now are beginning to experience those things. Peace with God. Well, certainly you still fight those desires. You're not entirely free from that yet, are you? And yet you experience a measure of freedom. Death no longer frightens you because you live in an age, you experience that age where there's no more death. Death does not frighten you any longer. You have a quiet conscience because you know that God looks at you with grace and not with judgment because of what Jesus has done. And notice that Jesus came to give you life to the full. Now here's the question I want to always ask. Is Jesus a liar? No? That's the right answer. Yeah, that's good. But the way many people live, you would think that they think he's a liar. Isn't that true? Isn't that the way we act every time we succumb to the desires and the enticements of sin? We listen to that desire which says, no, no. The good life is revenge. The good life is feeding those appetites. Right? Do you find counselees tempted by what the world calls the good life? Do you? Jesus came to give you a life that you could not have dreamed was possible. Now, do you find hope in that? What do you say to the man whose wife is leaving him? What what do you say to the woman who wants to leave her husband? You know what? In in those kind of situations, you know what I do? The young person, right? They're right on the edge. They're looking over the fence. They've grown up in this Christian environment, and they're saying, it's got to be better on the other side of the fence, right? You know, I ask people like that. I says, Jesus a liar? Now, they all know the right answer. No one would ever say Jesus is a liar, right? Unless you're a hardened atheist. But no one would say, no. You know, that young person who's willing to sow his wild oats, that, that kid in your youth group, that woman who wants to leave her husband, you say, is Jesus a liar? Well, no. Well, then do you think he's lying here? I have come to give them life and life to the full. Is he lying? Does he mean that? What what do you say to people? You say, look, this is what Jesus says. He's promised the good life. He's promised this good life. There's real hope in that. This last week, Beck and I went, made a quick trip to Iowa. Flew out, I mean, just drove out to Iowa and drove back because we had a dear friend who, who, um, who lost a seven-year-old son, right? Driving his four-wheel out in the farm country. My, my wife comes from farm country, and he's out. Seven-year-old Hazer's out driving his four-wheeler, and he hits his farm implement, turns the thing over on him, and he's dead. Is Jesus lying now? No. No. He's promised a good life, hasn't he? How does he do it? How does he do that? How does he give us the good life? Well, verse 9, he does it by saving you. He does it by saving you. Verses 14 and 15, he accomplishes that through deep intimacy with you. You see what he says in verses 14 and 15? That he's promising the kind of life that Jesus has, the life of intimacy with his father. You know what? The Lord has given me a rich life. 
And I'll tell you what has so deeply enriched that life. I have an intimacy with my wife, Becca, that far surpasses any other relationship on this earth. For, for um, 30, nearly 37 years, we have been together through hard times, through good times. And our relationship has deepened and gotten very, very intimate. And that relationship is so intimate and so deep that I have a good time just walking down the street with her holding her hand. In fact, guys, you know what? I can even have a good time in the grocery store with her. You won't find me sitting out in the car in the parking lot. Because I have a good time with her, even when we're shopping. And you know what? She has these gorgeous blue eyes. I can fall in love with her every time I look into those eyes, even with all those nice little wrinkles right here. That's just... just I love it. I love it. There's an intimacy that we have that far surpasses anything this world has to offer. And that's what Jesus is talking about. An intimacy with God the Father that's so, so good. It's a good life. It's a good, good life. That's why it's so full with Jesus. You see? You know, one of the passages that, and I think it's connected to this, right? Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And what? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion or my treasure forever. Wow. I want that to be true of me, right? I want that to be true of me. That kind of intimacy. And, And that's what Jesus promises. He accomplishes that because it says in verse 16, he must bring all his sheep to himself. He's going to do it. And he accomplishes that by redeeming his sheep by his death. Now, here's the question. Do you believe that Jesus has both the authority to promise that and the power to pull it off? Do you believe that? Yeah. That's, that's exactly what he's saying. He has the, the right to promise it, And he has the authority to pull it off. The last thing I want to say to you is you got to see Jesus at work in your counseling. Okay? See Jesus at work in your counseling. That is to say, because Jesus is the sovereign good shepherd, because Jesus is the sovereign good shepherd, you have to offer Christ himself. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this because I think this is absolutely essential if we're going to be biblical in our counseling. This has to be front and center. It has to be foundational. Do you do that in your counseling? Do you offer Jesus? We should not be offering a program. We shouldn't be offering a system. We shouldn't be offering techniques, but we should be offering Jesus. Okay, We should offer him to unbelievers as the one who can give new life, peace with God, freedom from sin, and the ability to change. We ought to offer him to believers since he's their shepherd and he will enable them and lead them into truth. Now, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says that he does in his counseling ministry. Key verse here, Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, it says this. Him we proclaim. Who does Paul proclaim? Jesus. All right. 
He says, this is what we do. This is my ministry. And this is that part of Galatians where he digresses and he starts talking about his ministry. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, notice this. He proclaims Christ. How does he do it? He says, I do it. By warning everyone, and there's our word, nuthatao. You could, you could translate that, and I think, it's, I think that's what it should be translated. It said, him we proclaim, counseling everyone and teaching everyone. So as he proclaims Christ, he teaches Christ. He teaches that Christ purchased all that we need, that he gave us peace with God, freedom from sin, and the good life that he promised. And he goes, as he proclaims Christ, he counsels. How does he proclaim Christ? He does it publicly, and he does it privately. He does it as he preaches and teaches, and he does it as he counsels. He proclaims Christ. Now you're saying to me, well, why are we here then? All all we have to do is say, believe Jesus, and all your problems will be over, right? That might be what you hear me saying, but that's not what I'm saying. Listen to what the Apostle Paul does. All right. If you want to see this, keep reading the epistle of Colossians, and you'll see how he proclaims Christ. All right? He exhorts to rest in Christ's forgiveness. He tells them to rest in his forgiveness. He counsels God's people to believe the promises of God and put their hope in Jesus. As, the, as, as you start chapter 3, where he starts getting into the nitty-gritty of life, if he's counseling Christ, how does he do it? Well, first he says, you've been raised with Christ. Set your mind on things that are above. Get that gospel perspective. Your life is hidden with Christ. Then he goes on to say something like this. Don't lie. Because you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. It's being renewed in the image of Christ. So stop lying. Right? He says, there's no Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, there's none of those kinds of divisions because Christ is in all and is all. In chapter 3, verse 12, I love that, where he he talks about because you're God's um, dearly loved, elect, and and, um, holy, put on these things. So we could put it this way. Because of Christ, you are God's chosen people. Because of Christ, you are holy. Because of Christ, you are dearly loved. And so, because of Christ, start living with kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience. You notice that when he talks about husbands, who does he refer to? Christ. When he talks to wives, they're to submit like what? The church is to Christ. When he talks about slaves, he says, give to your masters the reverence that you should, and don't work with them with just their eyes on you, because what? You have a master in heaven. Right? And you've got an inheritance because of him. He's got a great retirement program for you slaves. Essentially is what he's saying. Then he comes to the masters and says, be careful how you treat your slaves. Why? Because you have a master. Do you see what he does? Who's he talking about all the time? Jesus, isn't he? And he's central. Now, see, this is what we have to do. The moment you start teaching principles and techniques without connecting to Jesus, you're going to produce Pharisees. You're going to be very moralistic. You don't want to do that. Read the epistles. Read how they're always Christocentric. By the way, when when the church in Colossae heard the book of Colossians, they, they didn't have to wait 
for six months to a year to get to chapter 3, like we do it, right? They heard it all in one big chunk. If you read it that way, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see that Christ is in the middle of it all. And Christ is the, is the anchor to all the commands. And so the Apostle Paul can say, we proclaim Christ as we teach and as we counsel. It's Jesus we're talking about. And that's what we need to do. Because Jesus is the sovereign good shepherd, you can offer the good life. Isn't offering a better life what counseling is all about to begin with? Are you, are you skeptical of that? Are you trying to tell people that when you counsel with them, you just want them to have a worse life? Is that what you're, is that what you're telling me by your silence? You're not telling me anything. You're all asleep, aren't you? <laughs> all right. Thank you, Ike. You want to have the best life, right? That's what counseling is about. Because Jesus came as the good shepherd. You can say to everyone you counsel, you can begin living a better life and can start today. I mean, I'm sitting in my office just the other day with just a young guy from our congregation who's struggling with obsessive thoughts. You know, the OCD deal, right? That label, if you want to put that label on it. And I said to him, man, you know what? You can have a better life. Because Jesus promises that to you. You just got to walk in obedience to Jesus and watch what happens to your life. Because Jesus is the sovereign good shepherd, you can counsel with confidence. I used to be scared to death of counseling. Oh, it'd just tear me up. I'd just soon talk to 700 people because I know none of them are going to argue with me. Right? You can have confidence because if he's one of Christ's sheep, he's going to hear the voice of his shepherd. And the burden for change does not depend on you. Who's it depend on? The shepherd. I'm just the water boy, right? That's all I'm doing. Jesus does the work. You can counsel with confidence because it's Jesus who gives him the promise of the good life. You can counsel with authority. Derived authority comes from Jesus. And in Jesus' name, you can command things like, even though your wife's difficult, you have to love her because Jesus tells you to. However, as you speak in Jesus' name, you can also say this, and life will be better. Do you ever tell your counselees that? You've got to love your wife because that's what Christ tells you. Grit it out, man. Love your wife. There's real hope in that. Or, and if you do, what? Life will be better than you ever imagined. So, you have to see, you must see, that Jesus, the good shepherd, is the key to all your counseling. He's the key to all your counseling. And he is sovereign in every way. He has the authority to promise the good life, and he has the power to fulfill the promise. And so Jesus himself is the center of your counseling. All right? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for for your word. Help us to counsel and to live this way for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.